I'm Mary Parker, and welcome to this episode of Eureka Sounds of Science. Michael Hakim, Senior Director, Global Talent Acquisition for Charles River, is well-versed on the importance of diversity in the workplace, both through personal and professional experience. He has faced both racism and homophobia in his life, which gives him a unique perspective on his current role. Just in time for Pride Month, Michael is here to discuss his own story and his professional goals when recruiting top talent for a global company. Welcome, Michael. Thank you, Mary. I really appreciate you having me on. I really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for joining me. So let's uh, start with the recent article in Attitude about your life. How did that come about? Livia Conkle had reached out to me. This was about two months ago and had asked me if I would be interested in doing it for the organization. And mm -hmm. I just, I love it here and anything I can do to help, I want to. Yeah. It's important to me. Livia Conkle is our, uh, what's her title? VP of DE&I, I believe. Yeah. DE yeah. So, yes, diversity, equity, and inclusion. The article mentions that you grew up in Brockton, Massachusetts, and your grandparents were from Lebanon, um, yes. not Lebanon, New Hampshire. <laughs> no. <laughs> no oh, I have a friend from Lebanon, New Hampshire. That's why I was <laughs> I spent a lot of time in Lebanon, New Hampshire. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what was it like growing up in Brockton? Oh, God. Brockton is a very blue-collar city mm -hmm. on the South Shore of Massachusetts. At the time I grew up, it was a very ethnic city. There were multiple communities. It was good. It was just your everyday New England town. How did you meet your late partner, Martin? Martin. So I was living in LA and actually met him at one of my best friends was having a party and it was one of her neighbors. Mm. <laughs> and we met at a party and hit it off. And we actually didn't start dating for probably about three months. We we became really good friends and, and it just kind of evolved into a relationship. In the article, it mentioned that you were still kind of figuring things out. You'd lived in yeah. LA, you lived in Las Vegas, and you were still trying to figure out yourself and your identity. Yeah. Absolutely. Martin was the first real relationship I, I think I had. I was 23. I mean, I had gone on dates, but it was really the first real serious relationship I ever had. Yeah. And also in the article, you mentioned facing prejudice from Martin's family after his death and later from hiring managers who advised mm -hmm. you to change your last name. So how did those experiences shape your early career and how you presented yourself at work? I, I think it shapes more than your career. I think it, it shapes just how you see the world sometimes. So mm -hmm. I, I know with Martin, when, when he, it, it was just an average day, he was on his way to school. He was a medical student at UCLA. Mm -hmm. He had a motorcycle and was on his way to school and got clipped by a car and hit the wrong way and, and ended up, ended up passing away from the accident. And Myself and two of um, my friends called his his family and had to to tell them what happened and 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 try to see what they wanted to do and it was just I had never really experienced anything like it. His mother was just so cold and it was basically mm -hmm. said to me he died seven years ago when he told them he was gay and and as far as they were concerned they they didn't need to do anything because they already mourned him. So it was it was rough. It was uh it was a really rough time. 
I think I realized at that point that it just, it, it's not worth it. We, we go through life and we try to make other people happy. Diversity and inclusion, I think it's, they're not just words, they're really important. Mm-hmm. Because I think what ends up happening is we, so I'm also Middle Eastern, and that kind of ties into what happened to me at work. You can't hide being a minority. You can't hide being Middle Eastern or African-American or or Hispanic. I mean, it mm-hmm. it's there. It's front and center. But when you're also gay or or bi or trans, it's, it is it is something you can hide if you want to. And, and I think that it's a unique minority because we spend, I think, culture and the way we grow up teaches us we need to hide to make everybody else comfortable, even if we're miserable. Mm-hmm. And I think it's evolved and it's gotten so much better. But at that point, it just, it all just kind of hit me that it's ridiculous. We spend our life miserable being part of the gay community because we're hiding who we are. So everybody else can be comfortable instead mm-hmm. of just being who we are and, and living our lives. And when, when I heard his mother say that to me, it was just, it, it just like a, a light switch went on that I, I just, it's exhausting. I just couldn't do it anymore. Yeah. You know, I read a lot of advice columns. Um, I actually have a friend who's an advice columnist and a lot of times people will be writing in about one situation or another and asking about how they can fix the situation without making it awkward. And a lot of times what the columnist will say is it's already awkward because it's awkward for you and your perspective matters. So that's why it, it struck me when you said, you know, you don't want me to make other people uncomfortable. Like the situation's already uncomfortable because it's uncomfortable for you. It is. If you look at different diversity groups, it really is the only one where I think it's even harder because you're able to hide who you are or what you are. And, and, and it makes you miserable where being ethnically diverse or being gender diverse, you, you can't hide that. I mean, it, it's there. You you deal with it front and center. So I, I yeah. think it has a whole different dimension to it. Yeah. Well, you, in the article, it mentioned the someone gave you advice to change your last name or just go by a different last name. And and you took that advice for, for a while, and but then at some point changed your mind. Uh, so what, what brought that about? Well, it was the late 80s, early 90s, and I had been, I, I'd spent my early career either bartending or waiting on tables. I dealt poker in Vegas for about two and a half years, and I was living in LA bartending, and I just wanted to do something more. I, mm-hmm. I knew I could do something more. And I ended up answering an ad in the LA Times that said, make a lot of money, no experience necessary, work in an office, <laughs> train you. And, and I went and and he answered the ad and they brought me in for an interview. And, and it, it was a really nice guy I met with. It was an employment agency. And it was, I didn't even know what an employment agency did at that point. I, as I look back on my life, I realized most people don't get into recruiting or HR because it's their goal in life. It just kind of mm-hmm. happened. It was my, yeah. how it happened to me. And I remember sitting across from him and interviewing and, and he looked at me and he said, I'm going to take a chance on you and I'll hire you. He goes, but there's one thing you're going to need to do is you're going to need to change your last name because it's too ethnic and you won't be successful. Mm-hmm. Now I would never do that back then. It, it didn't even seem weird yeah. <laughs> when he asked. So I did. And I, I changed it 
my middle name is David. So I, I took David and made it Davis and worked under Michael Davis mm-hmm. while I was there. And then the next company, and then I opened up my own company and I'd already built a reputation under the name Michael Davis. Yep. So I owned that for almost 21 years and that name stayed with me until I sold my company. And then when I went into consulting, I was just, it, it just didn't make sense. So I went back to using my real name. Yeah. And did your early career experiences influence your approach to your work now? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I think, again, it's different now for that next generation that's coming up where you're in your 20s and 30s. I envy them because they don't have to experience a lot of what we experienced going back to the 70s and the 80s. And I'm Mm -hmm. sure that people before us thought we were lucky. So (laughs) yeah, it does because you, you spend so much of your early life and you spend so much of your time just hiding who you are and trying to be what's going to make everybody else comfortable Mm -hmm. that it it stays with you. Even when you don't have to do it anymore, it it, it stays with you at work in your life. When you meet people, it's, it's, I think you're, you were so pro you're so programmed to it at a young age and and having to live that way that even as things change, it's still part of who you are. Mm -hmm. I'm very careful when I meet new people, when I start a new job to really make sure I'm able to understand the people around me. I think that's why I'm good at recruiting because I've I've learned to read people, Yeah, but it's something that stays with you. So I I think it absolutely, it it determines who we are throughout our life and, and how we handle situations. I mean, even if you're looking at it from a totally mercenary point of view, having your employees be happy and comfortable is going to make them more productive and better employees. Absolutely. So there's just, yeah, there's, there's really no way to know two ways about it. Even the argument of you need to be professional at work. Um, I mean, sure, that means you maybe not want to like bring in your collection of horror movie posters and put them up in your cubicle, <laughs> but there's a big difference between that and, and, you know, bringing your authentic self to work. Absolutely. I think we do it really well here. Like I said, I think that organizationally, and, and that's one of the things I love about this company. And I, I have to say that if you look from Jim Foster to, to Vicki Creamer to, to Olivia mm-hmm. and, and how they've gone about looking at diversity and, and, and building out a, a, an infrastructure that supports it. I mean, we spend 10, 12 hours a day, every day, five days a week of our life at work. I mean, it, it's a big part of who we are and what we do. And and yeah. you have to be comfortable. You have to be able to be yourself. That's the only way you can do the best for the company that you're working at. I work here because of who we are as an organization, but throughout my career, I've been pretty lucky to be able to really choose where I worked. And I have always chosen companies that had a mission and, and that were truly mission-driven as we are here at Charles River. It, it, it makes a difference. And if you can't be yourself and be comfortable, it's it's really hard to help drive that mission. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, that's a, a good segue, actually. So when we talk about workplace diversity, it's usually coming from one country's perspective. Most of the articles you'd see would be about what it's like in America or the UK or whatever. But you work globally. So can you give me some examples of how recruiting a diverse workforce looks different in different countries? I think the process is the same and and everybody should listen to it because it was really great. The um, podcast you did with Romaine was absolutely incredible. And I think. Oh yeah. She's fantastic. (laughs) Really is. Her her take on diversity and and what it looks like organizationally, I thought was just spot on Mm -hmm. from my side of the house and my lens. It really is about 
how do we holistically and organically have a broader reach as we're looking at these are the openings we have and it doesn't matter what country you're in whether you're in france or you're in scotland or budapest it's looking at our organization and really making sure the outreach we're doing has a, a expansive enough reach to attract a wide array of people mm-hmm. making sure we're reaching out to underserved communities where where there are more minorities working with schools and universities and, and not only working with them, but tapping into the diverse organizations and groups to make sure we're holistically bringing in people that are diverse, but doing it in a way that makes sense. Mm-hmm. You can't just go out and say, okay, we need to hire 15 women next month. Mm-hmm. And, and you go out and only look at women. But what you can do is you say, okay, we need to make sure that our organization looks like the world. How do we do that? And and it really is on my side, working with our sourcing team and our recruiters and our business leaders to ensure that we, we're doing an outreach that in, in a messaging and branding that really talks to who we are as an organization and making sure that's getting out into the marketplace so we're attracting people from all walks of life. That makes perfect sense. You need the recruitment side, but you also need the hiring side so that the hiring is doing the best job it can of evaluating each candidate. Since the goal is to recruit the best talent, what are some examples of ways to simplify or streamline the hiring process in order to get the best idea of a candidate's skills or potential? Well, I think we've already made a lot of strides in doing that Mm -hmm. in a couple of ways. So we've been for the last little over a year rolling out behavioral based interviewing. Mm-hmm. A big part of that is to take bias out of the process mm-hmm. in looking at candidates and really be able to focus on skills and assess candidates against a set of skills, not just technical skills, but competencies that align to our culture and values. Okay. And it's been really successful. So it's rolled out through most of all of safety. We're now rolling it out to the rest of the organization, training managers, anybody who touches the interview process. It really does make a difference in really identifying talent through the interview process and taking bias out of that process. So it's really exciting to see us move in that direction. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, you mentioned, you know, having to have a diverse hiring board or hiring panel, but it's also important that all those people be trained that does make sense. What kind of training do they go through? Just anti-bias training or anything else like that? Well, our DNI team does anti-bias training mm-hmm. or bias awareness training. The organization invested a lot of money over the past year in building out our leadership competencies based on our core values. And then from there, what we were able to do is build work with our vendor, which is DDI, to build interview guides that really tie into our core values within the organization and the competencies for success. Based on that, we've been working with this vendor to do training for our man- anybody, not just managers, but anybody who touches the interview process to walk them through how to interview properly, giving them the techniques and the skills they need to be able to do a standard interview based on behavioral practices. Oh, great. What are some ways that even conscientious recruiters might unconsciously bias themselves against a candidate? And what can they do to avoid that, the training? (laughs) I think it's in the human DNA. We are all, we all have bias in us. Yes. I think how you approach it is what matters and with the recruiters they are given tools questions a standardized process as well as our sourcers to really focus and dig in on not only the 
technical skills and qualities that a candidate brings into an interview process, but also looking at what are the cultural competencies that that it takes for success in any given role and really being able to dig into those. I think giving not only our recruiters, but our managers and the organization, the tools to be able to assess against skills Mm -hmm. helps with that bias piece. Because I think that's when you interview people and you're unable to really dig into their experience and who they are as a person, not what they are, but who they are. I think that's where you're able to bring in the best people. And, Mm -hmm. And we're always trying to hire a diverse workforce. And it may be that it's not going to be a diverse person who's going to be the best fit for the job. We want to bring in the people that have the right skills to help us meet our mission, but making sure we have a diverse group of candidates so the percentage of diversity hires moves up. No, that's great. And so finally, you mentioned to me that you don't consider yourself a big advocate. You just live your life authentically. Can you tell me how you came to that conclusion? Yeah, I was thinking about that. I'd seen the question. I was thinking about (laughs) it. And I'm not a let me go out and protest person. I never have been. My husband, (laughs) Bill, very much is. He's been protesting since he was a kid. Him and his family would go and protest nuclear power plants. And I do believe in advocating. Mm -hmm. I'm just not a let me go walk in a protest. I'm just, it's never, never been me. When I realized I was gay, which was very young, I I know the time I had coming to terms with that and it was hard. And and when I finally got to the point where I I had come out, I, I think my aha moment for me was as I looked at the world and looked at it where I was, people were, we get, we judge people on what they are, which isn't fair. I mean, I'm Middle Eastern. I can't change that. I'm gay. I can't change that. I would rather be judged and looked at for who I am. Mm-hmm. Am I a good person? Am I a good son? Am I a good employee? Am I a, a good member of the community? Do I help others? I'm, what? Who am I as a human being is so much more interesting than what I am. Mm-hmm. I will speak up for anybody. I've worked with different organizations in the background for gay youth because I think it's really important, especially in this day and age. The suicide rate for gay adolescents is one in four, mm-hmm. which is 32% the rate of their straight counterparts. I try to help and advocate, but I, I'm just not a person who's going to go out public and walk in and pray. I just, I'm very self conscious. <laughs> it's really helping people come to terms with with who they are to me is so much more important than focusing on what someone is yeah. if someone is black or gay or hispanic or a woman i mean it's just it's it's so silly mm-hmm. i mean i might have to push back against you a little bit on that i i think that advocacy isn't just going to protests and you know posting and leading groups it's also for someone like you committing your professional career to making sure that everything that you have control over can be as fair and equitable as possible. Maybe it's a quieter form of advocacy, but that doesn't make it any less important. So I'll push back on you with that. (laughs) Thank you, because I am just really more of a background kind of person. I would rather do stuff. I mean, have you ever had anybody ask you the question, do you, would you rather be rich or would you rather be famous? I don't think I've ever picked famous. Yep. I would rather be in the background than in the front. I, I feel I, for me, I am able to accomplish more in the back. Well, I mean, the people at the protests who are on the stage giving inspirational speeches are very important, but 
so are the people that are building the stage and setting up the microphone. I agree. And there's such, such a need for it. I mean, I remember back in the mid to late 80s when the Advocacy Group Act mm-hmm. um, came out. And, and I look at the work they did and, and how much they had to fight against and the backlash against them. But if it wasn't for them, people that were dying of HIV would still be dying. I mean, yeah. their voice and, and how they advocated was needed at that time to be at a point now where HIV is basically a chronic disease. Mm-hmm. And people who have it are able to live full lives. I was just reading an article today where they're starting to do new testing on, I think it's called CAR T cells Mm -hmm. that they think may be curative. It's amazing. And it's exciting because I know our company really, as an organization, this is what we do every day. Yeah. I was telling a friend of mine, we were talking about the article when it came out and she goes, why do you work at a company with all that science? Because they just, they're not science people. (laughs) And I go, I'm not either. But what I do is I look at, and I ask her, I go, have you ever had anybody in your life who's died of a disease or a heart attack mm-hmm. or just a chronic illness and or, or you've watched some suffer I go I, I my mom all of her, her brothers and sisters died of cancer mm-hmm. one form or another including my mom I, I remember sitting at more bedsides with friends that had HIV and watching them die and I look at what we do as an organization every single day and it makes such a difference in the world I mean it's amazing Honestly, I think the more diversity we bring into the organization to give that voice and to help and to have that different lens on the work we do, both within the science side and in the business side, Mm -hmm. I think it it only helps us be better and helps us help more people. Oh, absolutely. I mean, science is is not in any way helped with a uniformity of opinion. So that's definitely true. (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Michael, for joining me and and talking about these issues with me. I think they're important and we should probably keep talking about them. I agree. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye.